and welcome to the Integrative Medicine Podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Mary White. Dr. White grew up in Maine, where she became inspired by the work of her father, a pediatrician who served their community and built long-lasting relationships. She then pursued her medical school training at Jefferson Medical College in Pennsylvania before coming to UCLA for her internal medicine residency training and completing a chief year at the Greater Los Angeles VA. She has since then held numerous hats in her illustrious career in primary care, urgent care, hospitalist medicine, and then later transitioning to community living center and nursing home at the VA before officially adopting her final role as an attending at the home-based primary care program at the VA, where she will soon be retiring from. As inspiring as Dr. White's work is in her clinical practice, I think her personal life is just as fascinating. She truly lives the principles of lifestyle medicine in her own day-to-day life. Join me in this podcast as we dive into Dr. White's career and her essential principles for medical trainees and doctors to obtaining a career of joy, purpose, and longevity in medicine, while also being able to attend to your own well-being and happiness. Thank you so much, Dr. White, for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Dr. White, I've had the opportunity to get to know you as my attending for one of my fourth-year geriatrics rotations at the VA. And while I certainly learned so much clinically, I also think there's so much that I got to know um, about you personally. And I've been really inspired by really how you live your life, because in many ways, I think you are such a great role model for what I think is integrative medicine and lifestyle medicine in action. And so I really wanted to have you on this podcast to get behind the back doors and see what it is that kind of makes you live the live the life that you do. So before we dive into this, though, I'm really curious to get to know what your pathway into medicine was like. Were there, you know, a series of turns or inflection points that specifically got you into geriatrics? Okay, well, by the way, thank you for uh, the compliment of my my work life balance lifestyle. I I don't I just it, I just do what works for me what what feels right for me, and it's taken a long time to get here. Believe me. Um, as far as what goes on, what what led me to this career, it's kind of a, a windy path. But um, much like probably a lot of your classmates, um, I came from a medical background. My father was a pediatrician uh, for a you know, small town. He pretty much was the only pediatrician. And he, he knew most of the families and children in the, in the town. So we, whenever we would go out to, to shop or uh, you know, go anywhere, we would run into them. And they would always be so happy to see him. And it, it, just, it was really nice to see that bond between um, my father, who was the pediatrician, and these families. And um, as, as I became older, I w- kind of watched what he was doing, and I, I was interested in what he did. And I, I would sometimes go to the hospital and examine uh, newborn babies with him. Because that, this was before many regulations that would prevent me from doing that now as a, as a kid. But, but I really thought it was fascinating how he would examine them and he showed me all these little tricks and reflexes and moral reflex and mm-hmm. I thought these things were were really neat and it really interested me and and I as I you know went through you know high school I, I did pretty well in math and science and I just thought well maybe being a doctor would be the right path um, 
NEA went to medical school, wasn't sure what specialty to go into, so ended up going into general internal medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that point on, I, I did many different rotations throughout the different, different roles in the hospital system at the VA. Um, I went from primary care to urgent care to uh, hospitalist, um, including ER, a number of hospitalists straight through and enjoyed enjoyed it but um the the work became more let's say time consuming in that we were expected to work weekends and all monday through friday and weekends and i had a child at the time who was at school age and i needed to spend more time with her and and the commute was killing me so ultimately the the bariatric position opened up at the at the pulpit campus and i thought about taking that and, and I, I did and that ended that landed me in the nursing home and home-based primary care mm-hmm. so I was doing those two positions uh, I, I loved the geriatric component which was like almost 100% um, wasn't crazy about the nursing home part of it um, I, I preferred seeing patients in the home and I thought that was a really interesting way of, of practicing medicine and then I was given the opportunity to do that full-time. So here I am now doing full-time home-based primary care out in the valley uh, for the VA, and it's a fantastic job, uh, lots of teaching mm-hmm. and seeing patients, and that's, that's what I love. That's so wonderful. I have this image. I can imagine you were saying, like, your your father was well-known by, by the community members. And I've also witnessed that myself at the VA. Everywhere we walked around with you, all the patients are like, hey, Dr. White. Or, you know, the really neat part about home-based primary care is we make visits to our patients' homes. And so I could witness very much and sense the same thing you were talking about with your father. So in many ways, at least how I observe it, it's the full circle. Yeah. Yeah, it sort of feels that way. That's wonderful. So... For context, for listeners, I had kind of alluded to how I think Dr. White is such a great example of lifestyle medicine in action. So people get an idea of what Dr. White's day-to-day life looks like. You religiously bike to and from work every single day. I don't even have the mileage down, but it's quite a hefty amount. And then every afternoon, this is my this is what I really enjoyed, is for mid-afternoon break, you're out on the tennis courts, either with the fellows and the medical students that are um, there, or other colleagues of yours. And then I understand when you're back home, you know, I hear about how you you cook around, you're physically exercising, and you maintain some really wonderful social connections with people around you. And certainly, I think that was the first time that I got to witness and attending doing that in front of me, which is quite inspiring and something that I'd love to emulate one day and think is a huge part of what I hope to empower my patients to do as well in the future. So I want to get a feel for, you know, have has your life always looked like this or what was maybe the pathway to, to living a life like this? Wow. Um, no, my life has not always looked like this. The short answer is to that. Um, it really has taken a lot of time and effort to be able to practice all these different aspects of basically health. And I don't know, but I would say probably in my mid-40s, my child was growing up. She was getting, I was a single mom, and she was getting older, and I was able to, you know, take, have a little bit more time for myself. And 
you know, looking around, I noticed none of us are getting any younger. And um, I thought, you know, this might be a really good time to start getting serious again about my health. I decided, you know what, I, I'm going to I'm gonna start doing something. I, I never, I mean, I always played tennis. I always swam. I always did, did things. I was physically active, but not like every single day. Yeah. So I started with um, just spinning and spinning and um and jogging that kind of transformed into road biking, mountain biking, and 5Ks, being kind of competitive in 5Ks, and you know, jog, running every day, and and that included while I was at work because I thought, you know what, I can I have a half hour for lunch. I could either I could sit in front of my computer and eat, mm-hmm. or I could go out and and run five run 3.1 miles and practice for this thing. So I started doing that. I started um, whenever possible running up the stairs at, at the VA, which is, you know, it's a pretty pretty tall building. So whenever I had to go to the sixth floor or any other floor, they would I would always take the stairs. So I made little rules for myself to start doing the stairs. Whenever I had to go somewhere, you know, to the store, buy something, if it was possible to do it on my bicycle or walk, I would do that. So mm-hmm. I just started making all these little rules and, and tried to follow them. And one of the other things was when I started working at Sepulveda out in the valley, I was actually able to ride my bike to work instead of driving, which was amazing. And I I started just a couple times a week at first. Then I thought, why not do it every day? And uh, so I I started doing very serious road biking. It's about 15-mile round trip. So doing that and then during the daytime, taking a little break, half hour for the lunch break, we can um, we can do some pretty decent tennis during that time period because mm-hmm. there's two tennis courts on campus. It's very, very fortunate to have that. But if no one plays tennis, we have an amazing steep hill that leads up to where our office is. So it's two miles around, so if we do a brisk walk, we can do the two miles, including a very steep hill at lunchtime. So there, there are all kinds of opportunities to get that exercise that you need, squeeze it into the day, and still get your work done. Um, You just have to say, you know what, I'm going to do this. When am I going to schedule it? I'm going to put this. This has to to be a top priority. Mm -hmm. And for me, I just don't feel right unless I prioritize um, some physical activity. Wow. I I think there, there are two things that I really got from what you just said. The first seems like you really tried your best to incorporate these activities, like integrate it into your schedule so that it wasn't something else that you had to get out of your way to do, but it was, I have to get to work some way. And so I'm going to bike. I have a 30 minute break during lunch. Use that, you know, for food, but let's go out to the tennis courts. Or it seems like you were very resourceful. You didn't have to be ingenious to come up with something that was brand new. It was just looking for ways to incorporate the physical exercise into your existing schedule or if it meant like you said walking up the stairs while you're at work and the other part I got was that you prioritized for a lot of us we tend to put our work schedule first and then whatever time is left you put in the physical exercise or the things that we know are good for us and oftentimes our best of intentions you're exhausted and it's hard at the end of the day then to push that aside or maybe say I'll do it tomorrow or the day after but do the opposite way where it's physical exercise comes first and naturally your schedule will fit in to accommodate that. 
Right, right. I, I do try to do that. Um, and I do sometimes come home really tired. I, I'm telling you, I do. I feel it too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if I, I've also found to be equally true that if you get yourself up and do that extra bit of exercise, you watch the dog, you promised you were going to walk your dog when yeah. you left in the morning, and, and your dog is still waiting for the, to be walked, and he remembers. Mm. So you take that dog, you go for a really brisk walk. You know, sometimes that the tiredness is all gone. The fatigue is gone. You, you actually feel energized. Yeah. Because you've done something different. Um, so more often than not, that will actually make you feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would give it a try. Uh, but, again, it's, it's all prioritizing and making conscious decisions about, you know, what is my default? Is my default to get in the car and drive to Ralph and pick up, uh, you know, a, a kind of ice cream? Or should I – why don't I just walk there? Why don't I walk there and not pick up ice cream? I'll, I'll, I'll pick up some carrots. <laughs> I'll walk there and pick up some carrots. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, sometimes it takes just as much time to get in the car and drive somewhere as it would be to drive your bike. Sometimes it, you can actually walk to the fourth floor of a building faster than it would take to get in the elevator and stop at every floor or wait for the elevator. It's, it's often faster when I drive, for example, when I ride my bike to work. It takes me 30 minutes and to come home. So coming home 30 minutes, it takes me 20 minutes to drive. But in that 30 minutes, I've gotten my whole workout. I've finished my whole workout for the day, yeah. and I feel really good, and I haven't burned any fossil fuel. And I've, I have put no miles on my car. Yeah. So I feel pretty good about that. That's wonderful. I hope to be able to get that point, depending on what the schedule looks like in the in the near future. But that's exciting. And what your and what your commute looks like too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But either way, I think what what we can learn is that it you just got to be a little a little creative to make it, you know, a part of your schedule. So, Dr. White, you are very close to retiring. You've had a long illustrious career in internal medicine, and and now you're wrapping up specifically with home based primary care. And so I wanted to really also touch on just career in medicine in general, because you're someone who I see coming to work happy and excited to get to do what you get to do. I'm curious, you know, what do you feel a career in medicine needs for that, that type of longevity, that sense of purpose and happiness? Uh, that's, yeah, that's the secret sauce. Um, I, you know, for, it's, I think it's different for everyone. Uh, so obviously I will speak for myself. I, I need to feel like I'm making some difference. I, mm-hmm. I really need to feel like I'm making a difference. And it's not just not just to your patients, but obviously you want to try to try to make, make their health better, make them feel better. Um, that's what you're there for. But it's not just that. It's that you want to make a difference to your colleagues, to office staff, and mm-hmm. to your trainees. I feel I feel as if if it, as if I can encourage my trainees and that includes the fellows and medical students or residents occasionally to look at their lifestyle and see how is it is it sustainable would they be able to continue this for the next thirty years without mental or physical health consequences uh, what can they do you know what are some easy fixes they can do to make their Health better. So if I 
So I feel like I've gotten through to even one medical student or fellow that I that I've made a difference, and yeah. you know that that's kind of like what my my again I'm going to bring up my father, but my father was he worked very very he was seeing I mean 50 patients in a day. I mean this was it was insane how hard he worked. He did, but he would drop everything at lunchtime. Everything, drop everything and, and dump in the cart and drive to the squash store every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would take that one hour and he would go, you know, go all out playing squash with his buddies at the college. And then he would come back totally refreshed and energized for the whole afternoon and evening of patients. And I saw him do that every single day. And that was what got him through, I think, 35 years of private practice in pediatrics. Plus, he has no vascular disease at this point in his life, <laughs> and has uh, he's yeah he's in really good health, wow. normal blood pressure, no vascular disease, never been overweight in his life. Wow. So um, I I uh, I kind of took a cue from that, and I thought that was really uh, important to be able to take that one hour a day, if you can, for yourself. Yeah. I wanted to get back to something you said about um, you try to impart on your fellows or residents or medical students, uh, um, you know, looking kind of into the future and asking yourself, like, hey, do you see yourself doing this sustainably? And if if not, what are some of the quick fixes you can make? So maybe off the top of your head, do, can you recall maybe in your personal life or perhaps examples that you've seen of what these quick fixes can look like? Sure. Well, I... I already given some examples of you know just as far as physical activity um what where can i substitute uh doing you know walking biking doing something mm-hmm. physical as opposed to you know in a car or just sitting down all day things that you know that that's that's easy the other things are um you know when it comes to diet for example i kind of look at eating and, and going out. I, I, I'm not crazy about going out to dinner, I must say. It's just, I, I find that it is, a, for me, in general, a, a very big waste of time where you're eating food prepared by someone who really doesn't care about you or your health long term. And it's, it's an expense, it's a, it, you know, time, time, money, and your health. So I, I find it very, very rewarding to make my own food. I cook my own food and I, I enjoy doing it. It's a, kind of a relaxing activity. Yeah. So that's a, that's something you can do. And and really it's not that time consuming. You can do it faster than it, than it would take to go out to dinner. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, if and when you're, you're able to do this as a, as an attending <laughs> You know, try try gardening. Try try growing your own vegetables and fruit. Fruit trees are very easy to grow. I do it. I I have um, like a I I don't even know how many fruit trees on my front and backyard, and and I just love having my own fresh fruit to eat all year round. Different things at different times of years, and there I grow carrots and lettuce and things that and tomatoes, things that are very easy, mm-hmm. but it's rewarding to be able to get your own, make your own food, cook your own food, and eat it. So the other um, fixes, the other things that you can do that are rewarding are stay in touch with your close friends and family, mm-hmm. confide in them, mm-hmm. have a good, have, you know, have someone that you, you're 
it's not quantity, it's quality. So you have to be able to confide in people, you know, when you're feeling good, good and when you're feeling bad, you just have to have to be able to open up to someone or some yeah. people um, yeah. or else, you know, you're holding it all inside because sometimes, you know, as a physician, um, you, it, it, there is a lot of stress on the job and we're, we're all human too. So I, um, I, I have been, I've been able to open up over the years of, over things that have been bothering me. Mm-hmm. No job is perfect. Um, but uh, keeping it inside is not healthy either. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think what also makes your career so interesting is that you you work within the geriatrics population. And so I've got to witness the adults that we work with or the geriatric population that we work with have multiple chronic diseases, multiple comorbidities, and they're going through a lot in their life, um, not just with functional losses, but some of the other um, other parts of life that are affected psychologically, you know, emotionally, spiritually, from what they're physically suffering through. Mm-hmm. But I am curious, have you noticed something, or what have you noticed perhaps about some of your your happiest patients, in spite of what they might be experiencing physically? Or yeah, that's a great question. Um, and we were talking about that before. Mm-hmm. Um, none of my patients are healthy by definition. We really can't have people who are perfectly healthy on our panel. Mm-hmm. So they may, most of them suffer from chronic debilitating diseases. Um, they're, for example, like diabetes and uh, complications of diabetes, heart failure, um, that all kinds of vascular issues, um, some, some dementia, um, psychosis. But despite all these medical problems, Many of these patients are really happy, and I and I really can't figure out why most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just can speculate. Yeah. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to say to them, "Hey, you've got these horrible diseases. Why are you so happy?" I yeah, wouldn't want to say that. But yeah. but what I do try to do is look at their look who's with them, look look who they're surrounded by, look at their photographs in their that mm-hmm. are surrounding them, and then you you'll often see a lot of old family pictures, you'll see maybe their daughter is taking care of them, their wife is still there taking care of them, or the daughter or the son are taking care of both the husband and the wife. Mm. Uh, they, they have strong family connections. There's a, you can tell there's a lot of love in in their, in their family. And the patients that are the happiest tend to have those connections. They also seem to have an attitude that they're, they're grateful despite everything. Mm. So they found things to be happy about. They, um, they seem to, they don't ignore the negative, but they say, I'm just so lucky I have my daughter to take care of me. She's wonderful. She, you know, and so they're, they're coming from a place of gratitude rather than bitterness and regret. Um, but we do have those patients that come from a more negative, uh, attitude and, and, uh, you're, we're specifically talking about the ones that are, seem to be very happy despite yeah. all their medical issues. Wow. So it seems like strong social connections and also a sense of gratitude and, and the different perspective of the same situation that someone else might be going through. Yeah. 
There's a, there's something else I want to add. Um, yeah. I, I have definitely learned so much from my patients uh, as far as what what to kind of look look out for, what to expect in, when you age, mm -hmm. but also the, the pitfalls, the, the things to avoid. Um, and I think that when you were doing home-based primary care, you probably saw some patients that live in, you know, surrounded by clutter. Mm. Um, if you didn't, I could take you out. They're literally, they're literally drowning in stuff, uh, clutter. That, and they're at the point, say in their 90s, they they just can't, they cannot get rid of it at this point yeah. in their life. They just don't have the physical or emotional or mental ability to go through and sort through basically a lifetime of accumulation. So you know, going out to these patients' homes makes me feel like, wow, you know. You've got to be so careful as you age to not overaccumulate because at some point you're just not going to be able to get rid of it, and, yeah. and it's overwhelming to these people. And they know they need to do something, but they just can't. Um, the other thing I've noticed that is that most of our patients uh, with the chronic diseases, those diseases are for the most part man-made. I call them man-made diseases, and that would be diabetes for the most part, hypertension congestive heart failure, COPD, obesity, um, and there's a whole host of them. But these are these are conditions that, for the most part, are completely avoidable yeah. with basic lifestyle modifications mm -hmm. um, when you're young enough to do them. So before this happens, get you know change your life so that you don't have to deal with this later on. Um, I can't emphasize this enough, and this is what this is what really, really hit home when I went into geriatrics, because I saw that the very end of of a lifetime of really poor choices. Yeah, yeah, and I think what's only more striking is that um, in less than twenty years, about a quarter of our population will be above the age of sixty-five, and about seventy-five percent of our $3 trillion healthcare budget is spent on chronic diseases, uh, many of which, like you said, are man-made and, and fortunately can be prevented um, and acted upon an earlier age. But with the, the, the pace and the environment and the climate that we're in and that the world that we live in, the choices that we make, it's not necessarily the trend that we see. But I think these are opening and the problem is very clear. And I think if we're going to be better equipped to to handle this rising tide of older patients in our population, then absolutely a lot of the change has to happen um, earlier on in adult life, as you referred to. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I would say that um, having this conversation with you and mm -hmm. if, you know other students are listening, mm -hmm. it's, it's really important that you, you become examples for your patients as well. Really. I mean, it, it's hard to tell a patient, hey, you got to start exercising, lose some weight, and get your sugars under control, and stop smoking, yeah. when you're doing all these great things, too. Yeah. So you have to, you know, really try to be an example for your patient. Try to tell your patient from your own perspective, you know, I struggled with this, and this is what I did. Mm -hmm. And I think you can do it, too. Yeah. So That's wonderful. Do you feel like you've been able to do that with your patients? Um and kind of share your own personal story of, of, of health and wellness and inspire them in that way? Uh, well, not my patients. 
definitely at the point that I, my patients, um, I get my patients really the damage has been done. Yeah. So my, my goal is to, to inspire my trainees and get them, get them thinking in terms of health. And, and a lot of you, you all will be going into fields where you can, you'll see patients at a much younger age where they're more malleable. You can actually make a difference Mm. in the trajectory of their life. Mm. So probably for the most part, pretty, pretty late for our patients to change. Okay. Wanting to take a little bit of a a deeper look, um, as much as I think a lot of us benefit consciously from paying attention to, you know, our nutrition and our physical exercise and taking care of our psychological well-being, I think it can be challenging in today's rush and pace, whether you're a physician or in any other career. And I think, you know, Dr. White, you did allude to a lot of this, but what maybe would your suggestions be as a starting point for like a young doctor to take the right steps from the get-go towards that that, that balanced career as, as ideally as you can get there? What are your top recommendations or tips for someone who is starting their training or starting attending life and maybe has more flexibility? Where can one start? Okay. Um, I think we, we always have to think about ourselves first, as selfish as that sounds. Um, what do they say when, you're, when you're, you're flying in an airplane that before you take off, the stewardess or the, the flight attendant says, if the mask comes down, Put it on yourself first. Yeah. So you have to take care of yourself first. If you want to have a, a long, successful career as a physician, you need to take care of your, your own personal health um, or else you're not going to be any good for your patients. Mm-hmm. So I don't think of it as selfish. I think I, I, need, to, I need to make sure I'm okay first. So how, does, how do you do that? Well, you have to make sure that you're mentally, physically, and emotionally healthy. Um, the physical part we've already talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, eat well, exercise. Don't be, you know, don't do the things that are, you know, clearly unhealthy, such as drinking, smoking, using drugs, things like that. Right. Those are the obvious things. Um, know what your what what are your goals in in your practice? What what is it that you're hoping to achieve? Feel like you you got to make a difference. So what is it that you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to are you trying to make as many people as healthy as possible? This would be the goal, actually. Um, are you trying to make X amount of money? Really, you need to figure out what your goals are and then feel like you're making a difference. Um, I don't think I think that we focusing on material benefits of because being the doctor, being a physician, that's that's. That's great, but it's really not going to make you happy in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll find that you'll, you'll you'll achieve those goals, and then there's nothing. So that's really not that's a, that's very superficial, and I would encourage people to think beyond that because really money does not make happiness. Um, you'll you'll realize that, and you'll be very miserable if that was your goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say try to leave live a clutter-free existence, not just material clutter, but emotional clutter, mm-hmm. things that are bothering you. Try to try to get in touch with those and, and live live simply. Um, it's experiences, not material things that make people happy. Mm-hmm. Um, have really good friends. Keep your social uh, connections going and 
always be learning. Uh, never assume that you know everything. Yes. You know everything, then you can learn nothing. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say always stay hungry for more knowledge. And, and another great thing I would recommend is to always start new, start new activities and hobbies. You know, as trivial as they may sound, like my example, I just started making yogurt a little while ago. Mm-hmm. I make my own yogurt. I'm just fascinated. I, it's really interesting. And I, I found it to be a really great diversion. So I, I'm doing that. I'm gardening. I'm reading about travel. I, I'm always reading about politics. I mm-hmm. do, do some investing. I maintain very strong connections with my family. Mm-hmm. I have two dogs that I love dearly that I have to take out walking all the time. I love hiking. I love being outdoors. Um, any kind of physical activity outside, I love. So uh, as long as you're, you know, you fill your life up with activities, have a goal, have a plan. Before you get up in the morning, before you even get out of bed in the morning, mm-hmm. you should be thinking, what are my plans and goals for the day? What am I grateful for? Mm-hmm. So have a gratitude list and a plan of what you're going to do and how you're going to take care of yourself today. Wow, that was that was a lot of wisdom. <laughs> um, and I definitely want to I want to replay what you said, and I'm glad I have it on recording now. I love what you said about not just the clutter, clutter free life from the from like the physical, physical objects, but emotionally clutter free as well. And the sense of purpose, which I feel like it's so true in, in the larger things for your life and, and for your career and, and for what you want to achieve in this lifetime that you have. But also a sense of purpose for the day, which can certainly be related to what are you going to do to take care of yourself, which I like what you said is, is sound selfish, but if anything, it's going to allow you to even give more to your patients. Yeah. And family and friends. Yeah. So Dr. White, I am curious, we, we've spoke about all these, I think, essential components, our nutrition, our exercise, our emotional connectedness to the people around us. I'm curious, though, specifically in the practices of, of feeling emotionally connected and attending to your, your mental health needs, have you found um, certain practices in your life that have helped you to weather the storms of difficult things, whether it's in your career, in personal life? Yeah. I'll just be honest. I'm I'm rather um, atheistic person, <laughs> so I don't have I don't have a religious faith um, at all. I would say I do believe we have a an amazing world out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever created this world is amazing. Um, so I do have faith in in the world and the universe. But as far as uh, you know, my what I is when times are really hard to fall back on. I really, the bottom line is friends and family. Yeah. Um, friends and family that you got to open up to. And uh, I had a tremendous loss in um, early March. I, I had a tremendous, tremendously upsetting thing happen. My, my dog was attacked and killed mm-hmm. in front of me. Um, then I and I couldn't reach out and I couldn't help him and I couldn't I just it was the worst thing I, I really one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life but um, and I loved this dog I, he was like a, a child to me um, and I without my daughter 
and my friends and my family reaching out and being there for me and, and understanding. Um, I, I would still be really, I'm still hurting right now as we speak, but I would, I was really almost non-functional or so upset. This is an example of how, you know, when times are, when you're really having a hard time, you can't just weather the storm by yourself. I'm so sorry for your loss and that you had to go through. Thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, really appreciate you sharing this incredibly important message. Experience. Yeah, and everyone goes through some some bad times and really bad yeah. things can happen. It'll happen to everyone if you live long enough. Yeah. So don't go, don't go through it alone. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me more about I'll tell you about Teddy. Teddy came along after my loss. Yeah. Um, my daughter made it, had an intervention, and she said, Mom, it, it's been two, two, three weeks. You are moping. You, yeah. you need, need, need another, another dog in your life. Yeah. Not to replace the other, not to replace Furby, but to just to give you something to, to work at and mm-hmm. to kind of divert and to make you feel better. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, let's do it. And so I have I have Teddy here, and um, I always tell him he's, he, he's not Furby, he's not, a, he's not a replacement, but he's just something that has added an amazing value to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, every, every dog is different, and you never forget your, your precious dog, but there's always a new one that you'll you'll learn to love and he's he's been wonderful he's a shelter dog he's so so scared when i first got him he was afraid of me he's a coward and it's taken months for him to um, come out of his shell but now Mm -hmm. he's he's a trooper and i i love him to death that's precious I'm, i'm very glad that he's in your life and and you get to be in his that's wonderful um and then I also, and then I also have fifteen-year-old Diego. Oh, that's Diego. He's my geriatric dog. <laughs> he's so cute. <laughs> he's so old. He's missing his eye. He's missing half his teeth. Oh, <laughs> poor guy. But we love him. They're they're precious. Um, and certainly I've. We've only added a dog more recently into our family, and, and I agree there's the sense of presence that dogs have that us humans have just kind of lost attention to, and it doesn't matter what's going on in the day, but you open the door, you come back from work, you look into your dog's eyes, and there's a sense of playfulness, and you put everything mm-hmm. aside, and you just give that attention, and you're totally in that moment with them, and that's the most special thing ever. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I, I don't know. Some people are dog people. Some aren't. I, I can't imagine life without a dog. <laughs> I'm on the same boat. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Dr. White, I really want to thank you for sharing your journey with us and, and opening up. I really appreciate it. Um, and I wanted to conclude by um, a question that I like to ask a lot of our guests, which is, what are your hopes and dreams for the future of medicine? Uh have several, actually. Um, I'm not sure if they'll ever come to fruition, but here goes. Um, I think that the that all public school tuition should be completely free, starting with medical school. 
So I, I think it's, it's insane, the system that we have that, that students who are brilliant, that, that are so smart, they can get into medical school, they get in, then they have to take out student loans and for years, literally years, will have to be paying back this crushing student loan debt. Um, whereas they, you know, this could easily be paid for. It could easily be paid for. And then these people, you know, you guys would be able to go out and, and become great contributing members of the economy. Right now, you guys are going to be just paying off student loans. That doesn't add to our economy. Um, but it's not strictly economics. It, if we made public schools completely tuition-free, it would encourage students of all backgrounds to go into medicine. And that would be fantastic for the, for the medical profession. It would be good for patients. It would be good for the, for the profession itself. Um, and it would even the, even the playing ground. Um, it would also probably keep costs contained at private universities because they'd be competing for the same group of students. Um, I think that, so that's one thing. I think we need to have public, it's starting with public medical school tuition should be free. Um, Medicare for all should definitely be uh, the law of the land in this country or some type of government-sponsored uh, health care. Every advanced economy in the world other than the United States has government-sponsored type health care. Um, here we have a, a patchwork quilt with holes in it. This is not a system. We don't have a health care system here. And, and because of that, we're, you know, we're the richest country in the world, but we, we don't have the health outcomes that you would expect for an economy such as ours. Um, there's just a lot of health inequality, and there's no excuse for it. Um, as far as uh, my other hope and dream, I think that we need to start teaching nutrition, health, and well-being in public schools, in medical schools, in every, you know, every public school should be teaching this. And the reason is our health as a country is so poor. Uh, we have so many of these man-made diseases that I think um, people should be taught at an early age how to be healthy. No one really knows. We were never even taught basic nutrition in medical school. Hopefully it's different at this stage you know, for you guys. But I think it needs to be taught way before medical school so that people have a chance. You know, they, you know, they don't know that McDonald's is bad for them, believe it or not. Um, people say, uh, you know, I, it's the only place I can afford to eat, McDonald's. Well, I, my answer to that would be I can't afford to eat at McDonald's because the price is just too high. And I'm not talking about the monetary price. I'm talking about the, the health price, mm -hmm. the health cost. So um, in summary, I think we need free public medical school tuition. I think we need Medicare for all. And I think we need to teach nutrition, health, and well-being to every student, uh, starting with like maybe kindergarten. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, thank you again so much for being a guest on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thanks for asking me, Tika.